0: Hi I'm Matt and I'm Lauren and welcome to the Out of Time podcast
1: episode 6. It's been a bit of a difficult week for us. Our kids are both ill and our son actually had to have a Covid test which has come back negative thank goodness but it has meant that we've had to deviate from our planned upload schedule. So this week's episode isn't the one we were going to release but we will be finishing that one up and releasing it next week instead.
0: And as you can tell from today's title we'll be talking about two unexplained encounters. More specifically, encounters with unidentified creatures.
1: This is something quite different for us. We live in the UK, and although there are a few urban legends, mainly around like big cats roaming the countryside, we don't really have any cryptids, so to speak. Unlike the US, it seems, where both of our stories take place.
0: This episode falls much more into mythology, folklore, side of the podcast.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think cryptids are just modern folklore, although I suppose there is no definitive proof either way as to whether or not they exist. There are scientists who argue that Bigfoot does exist. Even Jane Goodall did an interview where she said that she believes there may be large, as yet unidentified primates roaming the mountains and forests of North America. But really, any folklore can be argued to be based on truth, whether that is a version of a true event, which obviously evolves over time with many retellings, or the metaphorical truth of a lesson to be learned from the story. So if all stories have a grain of truth to them, who are we to totally discount the possibility of these creatures' existence? Especially when there are so many who claim to have had first-hand experiences like the ones we'll be discussing today. I mean, do you believe in cryptids?
0: I don't know. Yeah, I mean, there must be an aspect of truth in them.
1: Yeah, you would think. I mean, apparently there are about... 400 sightings a year of of Bigfoot specifically in North America so it does make you wonder mm. but as we've already mentioned Bigfoot that seems like a good place to start many names have been given to this creature over hundreds of years that the sightings have been reported Bigfoot Sasquatch, Yeti and one very famous encounter took place in 1924 in an area just to the northeast of Mount St. Helens in Washington, USA The gorge where this event took place would actually go on to be named Ape Canyon. So as I said, it's 1924 and a group of five gold prospectors were mining in the forest near Mount St. Helens. On the 16th of July, Fred Beck, Gabe Lefevre, John Peterson, Marion Smith and Smith's son Roy were in the woods around eight miles from Spirit Lake when two of them claimed to have seen a terrifying sight. Huge ape-like creatures walking with human-like strides through the trees. But this sighting wasn't the end of their now famous encounter. The men would go on to describe the humanoid creatures, or ape men, as standing seven feet tall, weighing an estimated 400 pounds, and covered in black hair. They also offered up more details, saying that their ears were about four inches long and stood straight up, and they had four stubby toes on each foot.
0: I mean, that description is incredibly specific, isn't it? when you compare it to all the grainy footage, blurred photos and vague accounts that circulate nowadays.
1: Yeah, it is. And I think that what makes me so sceptical is the complete lack of decent quality photographic evidence, especially when everyone is literally carrying around a tiny HD camera in their pockets all the time. Fred Beck actually went on to write a book about these events and he recalls that the group had periodically come across large tracks in creek beds and they knew that no human could make them. Likewise, they couldn't think of any animal that would be capable of making these huge tracks, the largest of which, he states, was 19 inches long.
0: That must have been quite unsettling.
1: Yeah, I mean, it would definitely put me on edge. But the thing I find even more unnerving is that for about a week preceding July 16th, they had been hearing what Fred described as a shrill, peculiar whistling coming from a nearby ridge, which would be followed by a similar whistle from another ridge. So, at least two of whatever it is that are making the noise are communicating through this whistling.
0: That's very eerie.
1: Yeah, and Fred said that the whistles would often be followed by a booming, thumping sound, just like something hitting itself on the chest. So, instantly for me, at least, that brings to mind the image of like a huge silverback gorilla. But obviously, gorillas don't whistle. No. I mean, I'd be terrified if I heard something like that. I've got, as you know, no outdoors experience. I'm, I've am i not even been camping. And I know that I would feel so exposed. And it's not like we have any huge swathes of untamed wilderness like there are in the US even now. And the biggest difference is the wildlife. And we have squirrels, foxes, badgers. They have bears and wolves. And Bigfoot. Well, yeah, apparently. Do you know what I've always wondered? What is the plural of Bigfoot? Like is it just Bigfoot? Like you can have one sheep or several sheep? Can you have one Bigfoot or several Big Feet? Bigfoot. Yeah, is it Bigfoots? Big feet? Sasquatches? Sasquai?
0: Yeah. <laughs> Dive. If...
1: That's the big unanswered question.
0: I mean, if anyone knows, let us know.
1: <laughs> yeah, if there's any cryptozoologists <laughs> listening, what is the official plural of Bigfoot? So I think it's fair to say that after all this, the men were all a bit apprehensive, although they were quite experienced outdoorsmen and they'd actually been prospecting in this area for six years. But I don't think any normal experiences could prepare you for the events of July 16th. The group had a promising day and as the light faded, they headed back to the cabin that they had built on the north side of a canyon. The cabin was windowless and really small. It was purely built for functionality as a shelter to sleep in with a fireplace at one end for cooking. There was only one bed in which two of the men could sleep while the other three had to sleep on the floor. So it's very basic. Fred and another of the men went to a spring that they said was about 100 foot from the cabin to get some water to cook with. And Because they'd seen these large tracks and heard this strange whistling noise, they decided that just to be safe they would take their guns with them.
0: I think that's a very good idea.
1: I think so. (laughs) And as they're walking to the spring, the man accompanying Fred yelled out and pointed his gun into the woods ahead. Startled, Fred looks in the same direction and he spots something watching them from behind a pine tree in the canyon. It's about 100 foot away from where they are and Fred sees it poke its head out just as the other man lets off three shots towards the tree. And this seven foot tall creature covered in dark hair disappears briefly before they spot it again running upright on two legs away into the canyon. Fred then shoots after it another three times. Okay. So they rush back to the cabin, tell the other guys what's happened and all of them agree that they should just head back to town, which was about two miles away. But it was already getting dark, and if this was some huge predator, they needed to stay safe in the cabin until the morning and then leave as soon as it was daylight. So that was their plan, and they all just laid down and eventually managed to fall asleep. But around midnight, they were all awoken by a tremendously loud thud against the side of the cabin. This impact was so hard that one of the pieces of wood that made up the wall flew off and landed across the chest of one of the men sleeping on the floor. Ow. So they heave this wooden plank off of their friend and they all grab for their guns. And that's when they hear a load of noise and commotion outside of the cabin, like large animals running around, followed by rocks being thrown at the cabin, some hitting the roof and others even falling down the chimney. A lot of reports state that boulders were actually thrown at the cabin, but in Fred's account he said there weren't that many large rocks in the area and none of them broke through the roof or the walls. The men were able to see three of the creatures that they'd seen earlier all together at one time through this hole that had been created in the wall where the initial hit was, but it sounded as if there were more of them, like out of sight. So as the eight men attacked cabin, the men inside would fire their guns in response and each time the stone throwing stopped, so did the gunshots. Fred states they hoped that by only shooting when the creatures were attacking, they hoped to make it clear that they were just defending themselves rather than launching their own attack. Yeah. But this attack lasted all night with only brief intervals of calm. The creatures pushed against the walls and door of the cabin, even climbing onto the roof at one point. The terrified men shot round after round through the walls and the roof, as well as using a large pole from the bed to brace the door. But one of the worst moments was when one of these eight men reached through the hole in the wooden wall and grabbed an axe laying nearby. Frank grabbed the axe and turned it so that it wouldn't fit through the gap. And another man shot at the creature's hand at the same time, which allowed Fred to pull the axe away and out of reach of the hole.
0: I mean, that would freak me out.
1: Yeah, as if it wasn't bad enough. Now you've got one reaching into what you're hoping is a safe space. So throughout the night, along with the crashing of rocks against the cabin, the group would hear whistling from the creatures, and even when they did go quiet, when the noise and the rock throwing started again, the creatures were still directly outside, so they were just out there, waiting quietly in between these attacks.
0: It's a very, lot like, predatory.
1: Yeah, it's almost strategic, which speaks to a, a sort of intelligence. Fred said that one of the men even called out to the creatures, if you leave us alone, we'll leave you alone and we'll all go home in the morning. And that sounds quite funny and ridiculous, but what that actually says to me is that these creatures, these mountain devils as the men went on to call them, were human-like enough that they thought it was worth trying to communicate in the hopes that they might understand. Mm. We all know that chimpanzees and other great apes are the closest animal relatives we have, so I can see that in your panic and desperation, you might try that tactic of just talking to them and hoping that somehow these ape-like creatures will understand you. But obviously that didn't work, and the attack went on until daybreak. At that point, the men heard footsteps moving away from the cabin, and after a little while of silence, when they could tell through the gap from the missing wooden slat that they would definitely have enough light to see clearly, they pack up just what they can carry and decide they should leave the rest of their supplies. It's better to get out alive and lose the supplies. Cautiously, they exit the cabin and according to Fred, as they were looking around, he saw one of the ape men about 80 yards away. So he shot at it and watched as a bullet hit its mark and the creature toppled down into a gorge. They make it back to town and agree that they aren't going to share the story of the previous night's events with anyone else. But one of the men, who Fred always refers to as Hank, but he does this in order to keep his identity hidden. So we know that none of the men were called Hank, but yep. he does that so as not to cause embarrassment to him or his family, etc. Um, he, Hank, went to the Spirit Lake Rangers station and told the ranger what had happened because he'd previously told the rangers about the large tracks that he'd seen, and they said, well, if you find out what it is, then let us know. Hank apparently also told some of his friends, and then the story got leaked to the papers, and as you would expect, it created a lot of interest, and loads of people started visiting the cabin and the surrounding area, hoping to see and hunt these creatures. The original group did interviews with reporters, and Fred states that he revisited the site of the attack with two of the reporters, and that they found tracks but never saw any of the ape men, and they also couldn't find any remains of the one that he supposedly shot and killed. As I said at the start, the area went on to be called Ape Canyon after the attack and hunt that ensued. So, are there large hairy primates roaming the slopes and woodlands of Mount St Helens? What do you think? Um,
0: well, it's a very strange one because, like I say, there's a very detailed account and the fact that there's a lot of people in the cabin all experiencing the same thing.
1: Yeah, and their accounts are quite consistent with each other's, although I don't think they've spoken out as much after this initial, like, search took place and they couldn't find anything, um... But yeah, when you think of all these stories that you hear, because we've all heard them and, and seen, like, the footage that a lot of it's been debunked, but footage and photos of, you know, Bigfoot, it's it's all quite consistent, really. Yeah. But it has been asserted that the rock throwing could actually have been the work of local youths. Until Mount St Helens erupted in 1980, there was a YMCA summer camp near Spirit Lake, which, as we said, was about eight miles away from the cabin. Apparently, councillors would take some of the campers on hikes, and often they would throw or roll large rocks and stones down the embankments. It's thought that the narrow gorge could also distort their voices. So if the YMCA campers and councillors didn't know that there was a cabin in this particular canyon and they decided to go out and do this activity... Could it be that the supposed 8-men attack was actually just kids at camp? Don't know. No, if if that's the case, then obviously it would mean that the men greatly exaggerated the events of that night. And maybe the fear contributed to that when they told the story afterwards. But do you really think that even looking up the sides of the gorge in moonlight, it would be easy to confuse some young people with 7-foot-tall hairy eight men i
0: was just thinking the same thing yeah
1: well i don't know and it's certainly a good story and there are some scary aspects to it the whistling in particular i find really unsettling and it's very interesting because there are other accounts of bigfoot encounters that mention whistling and rock throwing is a fairly common theme too At this point, I don't know anywhere near enough about cryptozoology itself or any of the evidence that there might be to say whether I'm a total disbeliever or not.
0: Well, I'm definitely on the fence with this.
1: Yeah, it's something you might have to look into more. It's compelling. Even if it's not true, it's very compelling.
0: Because I think it'd be fascinating to see some tracks.
1: Yeah, I suppose with photographic evidence, it's very hard to prove that you haven't created that Mm. do you know what i mean as a hoax um same with plaster casts if if you've already pre-created it although there are plaster casts of some that you can actually see the ridges of the foot so like your fingerprints yeah yeah like the ridges on your hands and feet um and that's something that the scientists who do sort of back the existence of bigfoot they will say that these ridges are like Twice the width of humans There's a banging outside our window And I'm really freaked out (laughs) I think someone's just having like fireworks Down the road or something But that's really bad timing (laughs) (laughs) Anyway Right let's uh, Yeah let's move on
0: It's definitely fireworks Yeah So we're leaving Bigfoot in Washington And heading over to Maine For a more recent story, one that takes place in Palmyra in 2006.
1: Cryptid enthusiasts are already shouting at their phones about this.
0: So the Martin family moved into Palmyra in 2005. After Eric, the husband and father, had suffered a severe back injury that left him unable to work. His wife Shelly managed to secure herself a job in Palmyra, which was her hometown, and so she... Eric and their teenage daughter Chelsea moved out to this very small rural town. They also had a son called Sean, but he had already moved out, so he didn't come to live with them. It seems like none of the family really wanted to move, but they had to, in order for Shelley to work and to be able to support her family. Palmyra was cheaper than where they had been living before in Maine, so they were able to get more property for their money. So they moved into a farmhouse, which came with a fair amount of acreage. It was really isolated though. There was a long access road and that led up to a large graveled area in front of the house where they would all park their cars. They also had a barn off to the left of the house and that backed onto a field. But further than that, they were surrounded by a very dense woodland in every direction.
1: See, that sounds so idyllic to me, but it's like I said before, I'm not taking into account the fact that they're in the US and there's some serious wildlife to contend with. And actually I'm not sure how I'd feel about being so far out from everyone because helps a long way away, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it is. But I don't think you'd like the idea of a house in the woods much after this. Okay. The barn I mentioned is where Eric kept his guns. He was a hunter, but Shelley hated having guns in the house. She didn't feel safe with them around, so they were locked up in the barn instead.
1: I feel like that might be a mistake. <laughs> but I do get where she's coming from, though I, I wouldn't want a gun in our house.
0: But if you were living somewhere like this?
1: Yeah, then maybe I might. (laughs) I suppose you could be more likely to need some sort of protection if there's bears or something. But guns do make me uncomfortable.
0: About a year after moving in, Eric and Shelley are sitting on their porch, drinking coffee, which is something they did pretty much every evening. And they see these pulsating lights over in the tree line past the field. Eric takes his son who was staying with them at the time, over the field, because he assumed that there was someone trespassing on their property, probably poaching, and they were just going to shout over to them saying, you need to leave, it's private land, or whatever. But as they get closer to the tree line, the lights move further and further back into the woods, until Eric and Sean can't see them anymore. So they think, okay, whoever it was is probably gone. But just to be sure, they walk in a little more into the woods. And they hear someone or something walking nearby. Almost as if whatever it is, is next to them. Just feet away. They know there's a possibility of it being an animal of some sort. And the lights are gone, so they just head back to the house. About a month after that, Chelsea and her boyfriend take the two family dogs for a walk over the fields. And they get to the tree line. They let their dogs off the lead and keep walking. The dogs actually run off. And when Chelsea and Nathan catch up with them. The dogs are digging around a hole in the ground. Like an entrance to a den. Some sources say that the hole was in some sort of dirt mound. So they put the dogs back on the lead and go back to the house. When Chelsea tells her dad. Eric realises that it's the same area that he and Sean had seen the lights before. But although it's a strange coincidence, it doesn't really add up to anything. Nothing happened for a couple of months, and one night, Eric and Shelley are sitting on the porch, like they always do, drinking coffee. Usually their dogs would come out too, but on this night, they didn't want to. I
1: feel like that's a red flag.
0: Yeah. It was really misty that night, and as the couple were talking they realised that there was no noise coming from the surrounding area. None of the usual wildlife sounds that they heard all the time. And so as they became aware of this, the combination of the strange quiet and the dense mist started to creep them out. Eric suddenly got the feeling that they were in danger, and he had never felt like that before. So he tells Shelley that they should go inside, something's not right. Shelley doesn't want to go in yet, but Eric has already stood up and is trying to get her to do the same when they hear a sound. Shelley has a really bright torch with her, and she shines it out over the fields in front of them, and she sees not just one, but three sets of huge green eyes staring back at them. She soon realises that there were actually five creatures crawling through the grass towards them. Obviously at this point they rush into the house, close all the doors and windows, making sure there is locked. But Eric, who is an experienced hunter, isn't sure what they have just seen. He's pretty sure that the eyes didn't belong to a bear. It's very unusual for bears to move around in groups and whatever they are, these animals were big. But his guns were out in the barn and he wasn't able to protect his wife and daughter. So he looked out on one of the windows and he could see the creatures moving closer. They were now halfway across the field. Shelley says no, please don't go out there, just stay inside. And she goes upstairs, turns off all the lights and wakes up Chelsea. As Shelley looks out of one of the upstairs windows, she can see all five creatures out in the field, just standing there, waiting. But one of them looks up directly at Shelley and stands up on its hind legs.
1: No, no thank you. That that's, that would be absolutely terrifying.
0: And she says the animal was at least eight feet tall.
1: Oh my god.
0: By the way, the dogs are upstairs, hiding in the corner of the master bedroom. So, no one panic, the dogs are safe. Good. Meanwhile, Eric is downstairs, and he's frantic, so he decides that while these animals, wherever they are, still a fair distance away from the house. He might have time to make it outside to the car and back it up close enough to the house to get all of them out. He knows he won't be able to get to the barn, unlock the gun case and get back to the house before the animals get in. Remember, he's got permanent damage from his back injury. Eric decides he's just got to go for it. So he opens the front door, closes it behind him and as quickly and quietly as he can, He makes his way onto the porch, down the front steps and towards the truck. All the while, he keeps his eyes fixed on the creatures. And so far, they don't seem to have seen him. They haven't moved. He makes it to the driver's side of the truck. And at that moment, the motion sensor light turns on. And that makes Eric jump. So he drops the keys. He looks over and one of the creatures is standing on his hind legs, looking at him. And as he bends down to grab the keys... All five start running towards him. Eric rushes back to the house, locking the door behind him, crouches out of sight of the windows and waits. He hears the creatures running across the gravel and up onto the porch, which is a wraparound, so the creatures are just walking round and around the house. Shelly hears everything and shouts down to Eric, but he just shouts, Stay there. After a few minutes, he hears the creatures moving back off the porch, so he hurries upstairs to Shelley and Chelsea. At this point they decide to call the police. They can't get out of the house. They don't have any guns with them. Maybe if someone drives onto the property, the light and noise of the vehicles might scare these creatures off. But as Shelley talks to the police, they basically advise the family to stay inside. Keep the doors locked and it'll be fine.
1: Well thanks very much, police. That's really helpful. Imagine if that was some sort of human intruder. They're just like, oh, you'll be fine. Just, look at, just, look just lock the up. door. It's fine.
0: So no help is coming. And for the next half an hour, they push heavy furniture in front of the doors, block any windows that they can, before grabbing small axe and some kitchen knives and going back upstairs. The whole time they were doing this, every time they looked out of the windows, they saw the creatures just sitting on the gravel outside the house.
1: See, this freaks me out about these encounters with so-called cryptids or whatever. They just sit and they wait, you know, even in the last one that we've just spoken about. That is not typical animal behaviour. If they're hunting, if they're stalking, yes, they bide their time, but they don't just sit watching you doing all these things and waiting for you to come outside or whatever. No.
0: Yeah, that's not normal animal behaviour. No. But as they finish barricading themselves into the master bedroom, With their makeshift weapons and their dogs, they heard some of the creatures move back onto the porch and started walking around the house again. Family lay on the bed, just listening and waiting. Then at least two of the creatures jumped onto the first floor roof. The first floor was bigger than the second floor, so obviously there was some additional roof space. And they were able to walk around the second floor and past the windows which were either side of the master bedroom. Luckily there were thin curtains over the windows, but every so often, throughout the night, the family would see the creatures walking past the windows, sometimes even stopping and putting their front paws on the ledge. Shelley later described being so scared that there were literally just a thin pane of glass between them and the creatures outside. At different times over the course of the night, they also heard rustling and scratching, as if the creatures were trying to claw their way into the house.
1: This one's worse. This is way worse than the Bigfoot.
0: Finally, as morning came, the creatures left. Eric called their son Sean to come over and help look for tracks and try and work out what these creatures were, who had spent the whole night stalking the family in their house. They did find some tracks, but they were huge, with claws to match, and it looked like whatever these were, the creatures could walk on two feet. They also found the long grass stamped down flat and said they could see the morning dew on the window ledges had been disturbed. Shelley said that she managed to get some photos of the tracks, but she'd lost them when she'd got a new phone.
1: Are we sure these aren't bears? I'm pretty sure. Well, it's just that a few of the things that you've said do sort of fit with a bear, like standing on its hind legs. They are really tall when they do that and scratching at potential entry points. They are things that bears will
0: do. But there were five altogether.
1: Yeah. I I don't know, but do bear cubs stay together after they leave their mum? Sometimes tiger cubs will actually stay in a group for a little while as they grow before they move on. I I don't know, I'm just trying to make sense of this.
0: But they wouldn't be able to jump onto the roof, though. No, that's true. And I did read an interview with Shelley, where she gives a full description of the animals, and she says they were covered in light and very dark brown fur which was very smooth on their legs and very tufted and wild round their heads. And as we said, their eyes were greenish yellow and very bright. Their ears stuck up about three inches from the side of their heads. They had hunchbacks and thighs that reminded her of kangaroos, with feet that had a long arch and heel like humans. But the ball of the foot that they walked on was like a canine paw with long claws.
1: That's... I can't even picture that in my head, that's bizarre.
0: She also said that you could feel the ground and the house move when they ran, so they were big and heavy.
1: I mean, they sound like some sort of werewolf or hybrid that you would see in a horror film, don't they? Yeah. But did So did they ever come back? No.
0: And the family no longer live in the house. They moved as soon as they could. Don't um, blame them. <laughs> and they actually moved into Shelley's childhood home.
1: Oh, okay. So they're in the same town, but... Not in that house anymore. Yeah. And did they manage to get any photos or videos during the night?
0: No. Shelley said in an interview that they tried to take a flash photograph of them out by the pond, but it didn't work, and they lost the photos of the tracks on her phone.
1: See, this is what I mean. Even though this happened in, when was it, 2006 when we all had camera phones, granted they had nowhere near as good as they are now, you would think if you had photographic evidence of something like this, even if it was just the tracks that were left, you'd make sure to back them up or at least keep a copy somewhere.
0: Oh yeah, definitely.
1: But no one seems to do that? No. So I think we've sort of come full circle back to why I'm so sceptical of these stories. Yeah, I mean, it's...
0: It seems to me that it's very strange, because from the description that she's giving, they were very muscular yeah. creatures.
1: Yeah, muscular, could walk on two legs. Yeah, very odd. Like I say, is that stereotypical werewolf, like, like Professor Lupin from Harry Potter.
0: Uh, yeah, that figure that you're getting in your mind.
1: Yeah, and... Yet, it was all night and they couldn't take one photograph out of a window.
0: Would you want to look out the window and be But spotted? they were
1: looking out the windows. Yeah. No,
0: it was, it was, I don't know. It's I a don't bit know. creepy though, isn't it? It is. So, if you enjoyed this episode, then please subscribe and follow us on Spotify. Leave a rating and review us on iTunes.
1: Yeah, and if you have any suggestions of topics you'd like us to cover email us at outoftimepodcast at outlook.com.
0: Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at outoftimepodcast. Let us know what you think, any theories that you have on these encounters, and what explanations you have for them.
1: Thank you for listening today, and we hope you'll join us again next week for some more history, mystery, mythology and murder here on the Out of Time Podcast.